You are listening to the Rama Blueprints Podcast, Episode 5, The Roots of Rap, Part 2, The Tree Begins to Grow. In the last episode of Rama Blueprints, after helping with the founding of the East Mission United Youth Organization, or Emunio, Jim Queen establishes the Real Alternatives Program, or RAP, in 1969. We'll agree to help to try and find funds to fund an organization. Now, we didn't want to do that with Emunio because we wanted it to be totally youth-run. Keep in mind, youth-run. Okay, so that's how the RAP got founded. And I came up with the name of the Real Alternatives Program, RAP, Alternatives to the System. All systems, school, so forth. So, so the idea was you run it, youth run it, the people in the neighborhood run it, and we'll de develop alternatives to the system and create our own system that we control. This is the Rama Blueprints podcast about the history of San Francisco's Mission District's Real Alternatives Program, a revolutionary youth service agency that practice self-determination and transform their life, community, and city. I'm your host, Socorro Gamboa. In 1967, Jim Queen helped a group of youth create Emuño. Two years later, in 1969, when asked to formalize his youth advocacy work, Jim creates RAP. He wrote the founding rap principles and philosophy, a map of how to progress as young leaders in a community struggle movement. Following is Jim Queen and three other generations reading the principles that rap practice. Rap principles and philosophy. Love and serve the people. If you choose to work for social and economic justice, it is an act of love for yourself and the community. It gives your life a sense of purpose and meaning. It is an honor, privilege, and joy to be involved to work that empowers oneself and the community. Youth self-determination. Informed youth have the best first-person understanding of what is wrong with the failed social and economic institutional systems that impact their lives and have the clearest understanding of what changes are needed to make them effective Youth must be the primary advocates and spokespersons for their own cause. Social activism. Social activism must be led by those most impacted. First-person activists must have thorough knowledge of the institutions and the systems they wish to change. Its stated purpose, policies, plans, programs, staffing, funds, regulatory and governmental bodies. Only informed activists can develop effective and social action strategies for change. Deinstitutionalization of institutions and institutionalization of the funding of the new systems. Failed institutional systems must be deinstitutionalized through the development of community-driven policies, plans, programs, and staffing that are culturally appropriate and reflect the needs of the community. In order to ensure sustainability, 
they must be guaranteed institutional funding for the redesigned institutional systems from the appropriate funding sources, city, state, federal, or private. New systems should include the development of civil service categories for community workers that are represented by the community population where they serve. For dignity and respect, everyone must be treated with dignity and respect. All conflicts between the individuals, groups, and organizations must be handled with total transparency and resolved immediately. If there's a need for mediation, the findings of the mediation must be honored. These are RAP principles and philosophy. All power to the people. We feel that it is important that we presented the RAP principles and philosophy. In this episode, we speak with four of the seven directors of RAP and tell their story about their personal transformation that was ignited by various RAP actions. We listen to three specific historical events that helped RAP establish themselves as change agents. The chaining of the doors at SF Juvenile Hall, a.k.a. YGC, the Sears Roebuck picket line, and the development of young leaders through mentoring, training, and opportunity to practice their newly acquired skills working at RAP. Each of these will include examples of how the principles and philosophy look when actually practicing community actions. You will also hear the stories of former rep staff and young community leaders in San Francisco who adopted and worked with the rap ideals. Sadie Viapando Williams is a former rap staff member, retired BART manager, and presently a life coach. She was one of the first Chicanas to attend UC Santa Cruz. She talks about how she arrived at RAP in 1970 as a 19-year-old college student on summer break. She details her responsibilities as a teenager. Keep in mind, all of these leaders are thrust into important leadership roles that we generally associate with older, more established adults. Her words are a perfect example of both love and serving the people and youth for self-determination. We have a summer break and I needed a job. And my sister, Joyce, she says, you know, why don't you go over to RAP? They're hiring, they could use a counselor. I said, oh, okay. So she says, it's just around the corner. So she brings me over there and I meet Jim. And I tell Jim I'm on the summer break and I would like to work. And I understand you might need somebody to help work as a counselor here. And he said, yeah, yeah, we need, we need counselors. We need somebody like you. As a matter of fact, we need somebody to start a school. I'm like 19. I'm like, okay. And I really remember clearly Jim giving me a yellow steno pad, like here, start the school. I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> I'm 19, right? But really what happened is I came into the program, Jim, he had values that he wanted us to honor. And that was to love and serve the people with dignity and respect. That became the rap motto. And all of us had to learn that. And that was his requirement, that whoever we interacted with, we must treat them like family. And we teach them with dignity and respect. So love the people. I become an assistant for a little while. My job is to vet families, to become foster homes for the kids that Sam 
was representing and advocating for at YGC. That was what we were, RAP alternative program. We offered alternatives to youth incarceration. Mm. And so part of my job was to help find homes, recruit them, interview them, and make sure they were decent homes for the kids. Mm -hmm. And then I started to work with Sam, learning how to put together a, a case plan for the Youth Guidance Center judge so that the kids could be released in our custody and they could go to the foster home and then be involved with us so we could provide some education alternatives. And this became part of the introduction, the overview of what RAP does and how you interact with the students and the kids of the neighborhood. And we hung out. We were just a great place. We would take the kids on trips. We got them active with the farm workers. We went to Delano. You know, we did it, the whole thing. We got them on the Sears strike. We taught them what it meant to be an activist. We didn't call it that. We were like, hey, no, we got to shut it down. Yeah. You know, <laughs> shut it down and really get jobs. We were recruiting for jobs. And Sam and Robert Dwight and Jim were negotiating with the stores to try to get youth jobs and they wouldn't give it to us, so we went on strike. And we kicked butt, and Feely was so wonderful. Feely was a great kid that had a big voice, and you know, he was a good organizer. So all of us were very young, very active. I mean, we were teenagers ourselves, practically. We were only 19, and here we are with 15-year-olds, right? Mm -hmm. How they gave us <laughs> that much responsibility, I don't know. This is Edgar Quiros, former youth program coordinator at Centro de Cambio and the former chair of the Mission Youth Project in the 1970s. He talks about the importance of San Francisco being named a model city and how it had a personal effect on his life. During the launch of the War on Poverty in 1968, San Francisco, among other great cities in the country, were designated as a model city and certain neighborhoods, including then Western Edition, Hunters Point, Mission District were considered model city neighborhoods. And that then began really solidifying what are the needs of the community. My dad would always bring me along to all the MCO activities as a little Mocoso kid, you know, running around. But just at the same time, almost through osmosis, getting politicized. It was shortly thereafter that I joined him at others in the Mission District with the United Farm Workers, uh, boycott and some of the liquor stores who would not get rid of Gallo wine. You know, the mission was such a phenomenal place back okay. then. You are listening to the voice of Orlando Torriente, former rap staff with the Por Vida component. I always say it was so unique. I've been in L.A., the East Coast, Florida. There's within the Latino community mm -hmm. kind of like segments. People have their barrios or they, they're split up. What, Puerto Ricans and Dominicans here, the Colombians up here, yeah. and Dominicans in Washington Heights, so whoever in Queens. L.A., it's like pretty much if you're Mexicano or damn near Mexicano. You know? <laughs> That's you're right. Salvador. Recently, with all the migrations, right. after all the political strife, these other communities grew, but the power of the Chicano community and the Mexican community was just really big. So San Francisco was very unique in that it was always such a melting pot, just even within the Latino community, mm -hmm. right? You would meet people from Nicaragua, El Salvador, there was Cuban, Puerto Ricans, and, you know, African-American community. 
there was so much going on back then. San Francisco was unique in a way that these cultures really molded. We're talking about 1976, 77. Okay, yeah. You know, the, the whole Cholo thing hadn't really hit hard. Right. The only people that got exposed to that were guys that went to the joint. But on the street, people were still being influenced. There was more of like Ben Davis, you know, or Superfly. It was like this really weird kind of unique culture here. This is the voice of Santiago Sam Ruiz, a former foster youth and rap participant. In 1971, at 16, he emerged as one of the first young rap leaders to lead the fight for summer jobs and organize the picket lines against Sears, which eventually resulted in jobs for young folks and the eventual establishment of the Mayor's Summer Youth Employment Program. Part of the learning process with rap came out of a simple poster that was displayed on their wall. It said, the youth ain't criminal, the institutions are. And I looked at it, I read that quote a good 50, 60 times in one afternoon. I couldn't get it out of my mind and I interpreted it my own mm. way. And that same afternoon, as I met Fili Sala, who was then the president for the Missionary Youth Council, I call him the Community General, General de la Calle. And the Missionary Youth Council was a component of RAP. It was their uh, youth engagement means of introducing young folks to the social justice movement. And I had a meeting with Fili, and he uh, introduced the concept of the Youth Council. It's a different committees, introduced me to some of the youngsters that were rap youth, but that they were in a leadership position, including Robert Dwight, who I still stay in touch with, and staring at that poster that said that you think criminal, the institutions are. I was introduced to the uh, concept of the employment committee. I think I was around 15 and was having problems with school attendance. You are listening to the voice of Robert DeWhite, former rap youth, peer counselor, and organizer, and former executive director of the Mission Community Legal Defense Organization. School just was a big turnoff for me, so I found myself hanging out on the streets with the other brothers and sisters. Eventually, I uh, started to hang out in front of a friend's house that was right around the corner from 22nd and Guerrero, where rap had established offices. So it was a, like a magnet for you to come out and hang out. Not only did we have to hang out, we were told we had to answer telephones. It gave us a purpose. Speaking to the counselors there, they provided encouragement in terms of continuing with my education, but at the same time gave me some perspective of how young people could develop organizing skills so that we could come together as a forced to be reckoned. And what came out of all of that was that instead of just hanging around and watching TV, is that we could go and assemble as a group and come up with ideas as to what we had in common as young people. And one of the things that came out of that was jobs. We had an employment committee that we developed to negotiate for youth jobs at the mission. That attracted more people to come to our meetings and have more exposure to what we were doing. And eventually we had 
develop a organization that had at least 20 community organizations mm. involved. Youth for Service, Mission Rebels, RAP, Horizons Unlimited, you name it. And so my assignment was to develop that committee along with Robert Dwight. This is the voice of Sam Ruiz. And we did a fairly decent job of creating the necessary framework just from talking to Fili Sala. I think at that time we were talking about creating a hundred jobs, summer jobs for youngsters. And we identify where we would be getting those jobs from. Sears Roebuck, Whitefront, Kilpatrick's, PG&E, Wonder Bread. There are a host of other entities or corporations that we uh, identified as targets. We started negotiating with Whitefront and we weren't that successful with them. I think we asked for 25 jobs and we got something like five. But to us, it was a significant victory. It's five that you didn't have, right? And then we moved out to USC. They were a competitor to Sears Roebuck. And so we negotiated with them just before the summer and we were able to get 20 jobs out of them. And then we uh, approached Sears Roebuck and that was a hard nut to crack. <laughs> yeah, those were the big boys. Right. And we developed a very good working relationship between the youth council and the MCO. We shared resources. And so they took us under their wing and they uh, showed us how to conduct research out of public library using different means of information. And we were able to identify information that was relevant to Sears Roebuck. The amount of money that they grossed, where their stores were at, the makeup of their board and so forth, right? And so we armed ourselves with that information and we became quite ambitious with them. We started negotiating for 50 jobs and they laughed us out of the room. Actually, they wouldn't give us a meeting, but it got to the point where we identified 50 jobs and they didn't budge at all. So we decided to pick it. We had a good two, 300 people there, quite a, a lot of media interest also. And out of that media interest and public interest, right, and what was going on, we were able to get 25 jobs in a four-day period. We picketed for about a week, not every day, but, you know, sporadically. And they finally called us in and we had a formal negotiation and that was the outcome. But that was probably the best experience that Robert and I and Philly shared with this community, right? Mm -hmm. Success, community engagement. We looked at ourselves from that point on as change agents, not as community organizers, but as change agents. And I still see myself as a change agent working in community. And that's how I behaved myself while I was the executive director or CEO for Mission Neighborhood Centers. So for me, my experience with RAP basically was the foundation. All this stuff that was going on, these social movements. This is the voice of Orlando Toriente. Of course, organizations like RAP would boycott Sears, mm -hmm. right, and demand jobs. I mean, people used to organize and say, F it, we'll boycott this mall. We're going we're gonna to pick it. I always am blown away why that has lost it's cachet. I don't know why people don't do that anymore. Cause like, if you get a bunch of young people to start picketing in front of your store, like, bro, you're gonna, you're gonna yeah. pay attention. Since its inception, RAP had always prioritized the closing down of San Francisco's Youth Guidance Center to the point where many campaigns 
protests, testimonies, and efforts to shut it down had fallen on the deaf ears of City Hall and the city's politicians. Frustrated with the lack of progress, RAP plans a youth rally in front of YGC with the battle cry, Lock the POs! Their strategic culminating action was the chaining and locking of YGC's doors. Jim Queen steps up to apply the chains and the locks, and Sam Ruiz reflects about the powerful message that was sent to the city and to San Francisco's youth population. At that point, I was the uh, Youth Guidance Center liaison. So I was the community rep going to court with our kids and representing them and their families. And I did that for about four years. I loved every minute of it. But our goal was to shut down Youth Guidance Center. And we were actively in developing tactics, not strategies, but tactics on how to go about that. We were busy trying to shut down Youth Guidance Center. I think for me, during my time at RAP, was the time that the doors were chained at Youth Guidance Center. That was the most significant, impressive, and even motivating experience for me. At my age, to see this institution that I had dealt with and its doors be chained and the media filming it. And it's like, can you imagine that? You're literally taking on the system as a whole. It's symbolic of community self-determination. It was an act that led to other, again, tactics, but it was the beginning for me. It was an introduction to those words, youth self-determination. It, it, it meant the world for me. And from that point on, I don't think I was afraid to take on any institution or any entity. Me dio este valor, me dio fuerza, courage, the strength. I'll use the word again. It was very, extremely motivational. That's a big difference. Yeah, when you're motivated by that act, that means you can do anything, you know, anything you set yourself to accomplish. Sam would eventually become director of RAP and CEO of Mission Neighborhood Centers. Roberto Hernandez is well known as a community activist and executive producer of Carnaval, including other cultural events within the Mission District. He was a youth organizer and former director of RAP. He shares the story of how he came to RAP and the challenges he faced when asked to step into the leadership role. For Roberto, it is the mantra of Si Se Puede and the RAP principles and philosophy that help him develop as a future community leader. Then I was dipping and dabbing, you know, running the streets and running the muck. And I got arrested a couple of times and I landed up at RAP at one point and Sam Reese became my counselor. Sam just had such a big, powerful influence over a lot of us at the time. I already knew about community organizing. He started talking about, we got to go fight for jobs and we got to organize community around closing YGC. And I mean, it didn't take much. I just uh, bonded with him like a big brother mm. to me. And that was the beginning of me getting involved with rap. And then I got involved in doing some work at the Mission Coalition organization. Became a youth organizer there. And then Sam eventually, you know, asked me to come be an organizer at RAP. And I was an organizer for a while. 
And then I became the court liaison at YGC. And it was a trip. I was a young man going to court and coming up with plans, telling judge, hey, you know what, this, you know, Fulanito should not go do three years in California authority. Right. Get a job, you know, get an education. Sam told me that he was going to be leaving and if I would be interested in becoming the director of RAM. And I was scared, honestly, as mm-hmm. I look back, you know, I was scared. But I remember that, si se puede, si se puede. yeah, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. You know, I had to keep convincing myself. You know, I think like a lot of us that went through rap, we didn't have that college education and we didn't have the experience of being administrators and managers. We were just people that wanted to, like Jim Queen taught a lot of us just to love and serve our community with dignity and respect. And so I did, I stepped up and I really gave it some thought. I wanted to really make a change. And that was constantly something that I heard from Dolores and I heard it from Cesar, I heard it from Jim Queen, that we had to make change in our community and fight for self-determination. Mitchell Salazar grew up in the neighborhood of San Francisco's Bernal Heights. His upbringing was filled with youthful exuberance, domestic violence, tragic circumstances, and pure hustle from a very young age. At 16, he began organizing his legendary UNI dances from 1978 to 1982. He created a monthly safe space for youth and provided the opportunity for them to socialize and spend time with their neighborhood friends in a positive environment. During that time, he arranged many UNI dances, which included bands, DJs, and good times. He once brought the legendary soul singer Mary Wells into San Francisco for a concert. He joined the rap staff as a youth organizer in 1980. I would say that much of my hustle voyage that I have lived with my entire life started in Bernal Heights on Cortland Street in the 70s. In 1970, Bernal Heights and Cortland Street was a real multicultural family working class neighborhood. There must have been 25 businesses on the stretch of Cortland Street from Volcana to Folsom. And they had the traditional Bank of America. They had a uh, pharmacy that was not Walgreens or CVS, but a privately owned pharmacy. And they also had a pretty big kind of grocery store. And the rest of the businesses were predominantly African-Americans who had beauty shops, barber shops, record stores, candy stores, cleaners, and an array of businesses that they made their living on. And I was a kid growing up there, and I hustled and worked at many of these places. And it gave me a real uh, appreciation for running around and trying to make dollars back then, if not quarters. And I did that while being one of three siblings living with my mother who had brought us from New Mexico when I was around seven. And she remarried and she married a very bright white man who was a real estate agent and kind of a teacher. And he was, you know, a pretty smart guy, but he was also a very violent man. I grew up in a lot, a lot of domestic violence. 
Back in those days, there were Filipino gangs, and we used to fight them. And one of my good friends, by the name of Arturo Duran, was killed when he was 15, fighting the Filipinos up at Wilson High School. Someone ran up, and he was on the ground. They put a gun in his mouth and killed him. And so from that experience, I started to be a good boy, and I started peddling marijuana. Because the local biker club would give me it, big bags, and say, just bring me back some money. And I remember I used to roll around three on your joints and go to school, and they were three, four dollars. And once that happened, and I learned how I could make that kind of money, all the other drugs followed. When I was in the eighth grade, I cut half of my thumb off in the metal shop. At that point, my mom said I was just going out of control. She sent me back to New Mexico when I was maybe 14, 15. And I lived in a little town called Ocalis, New Mexico, which was like on the Texas border. I was there for a year. And I clearly remember that time because it's when Rocky's movies first came out. And I landed up not knowing a lot of people there, a strange boy in a strange place. And most of the People that I went to school with were white, and I landed up working in the field picking weeds out of peanuts, and I also landed up working in a kill house, and for that year that I was there, you know, I definitely said, Mom, man, it's time for me to come home, and she allowed me to come home, and I was probably 15 years old and ended up going to John O'Connell and again, getting caught up in some entrepreneurial behavior with mescaline and acid with all the white boys that used to come in from the sunset. And we were drinking and using and going to school. And I remember I had two shop classes at John O'Connell and just kind of went in and out of those classes, didn't take it serious. Went from John O'Connell to downtown High, and something happened. Probably around 17, a friend of mine used to do these dances and charge. And so I decided to do them to make money, entrepreneurial behavior. And we called on Mitchell Salazar Presents and I, and they took off. It was the right time at the right place. And I used to walk from Cortland and Bishop to Dolores Park putting up the posters for the UNI dances, and I would do these little events. There was not all of this blue, red shit going on, and those little events grew into bigger events, and I was approached by one of the neighborhood businessmen. Who, his name was Simon, and he was from Detroit. He used to be a writer for Motown. He was a mm-hmm. pimp. And then he came to California, went to college and became a psychologist and then became a compulsive gambler. And he had a business called the Portable Picnic. And basically it catered to a very white group of people in downtown buildings that wanted to eat healthy salads, turkey salads, turkey sandwiches, carrot cake, vegetables, and tuna and egg salad and he had this whole little menu of items and i started making cookies for them we would prepare all the turkeys by scratch and make all the food by scratch and i did it and i did it and i did it and i did it and i landed up quitting school because i couldn't do both 
started doing these dances. And there was a gentleman that had an ice cream store next door that was a very uh, influential consultant that worked for McKinsey and Company. And he had this ice cream store as a tax shelter. And myself and the compulsive gambler asked him to borrow a thousand dollars so that I could do a big dance at the California Hall on Vulcan Turk. And mm. this poor gentleman by the name of Julian Fairfield said, I'll give you a thousand, but I want to charge you a thousand. Said, what the fuck? Uh, we said, fine, we'll do it. And we brought in a group from Chicago called the DeSoto Band, which was Latino musicians playing funk and dance music. And obviously, we had DJs. And back in those days, when you're talking 1978, 1979, back in those days, you only had two or three radio stations. And one of the most listened radio stations back in those days in San Francisco was KDIA. And I hired one of their black hosts, Alvin Weekle. And there I was at 17 years old, did all the promotion and word of mouth. And around 1,700 or 1,800 people showed up. And I was in the middle of that dance floor fucking in awe, couldn't control shit, and Ernesto Salazar popped up and came up to me and said, hello, brother, my name is Ernesto Salazar, and it looks like you really need some help. I got a bunch of homies with me. What do you want me to do? I said, clear the dance floor, and let's do a dance contest and try to keep this shit intact. And at that time, the guy that loaned us $1,000 had been selling hot dogs and selling sodas and was just blown away, blown away. And the event was a success. A couple of weeks after that, he called me up and he said, hey, Mitch, let me uh, talk to you. I go talk to him and he says, hey, stop working for Simon. Come work for me. You'll work in the ice cream store three days a week. I'll pay you $500 a month for your spending money. And I'll front all the money to do the dances and we'll save the money and invest it. I said, oh, that's like a great deal. I did it. And the first chunk of money that he gave me, I tried to flip it and fucked it up. And he was somewhere out of the country. He called me up and said, hey, I don't have no time to fuck with you. So uh, the deal's over. By that time, I was about 18 years old, and so I was still doing the UNI dances, and but I was working at a dry ice factory in San Francisco for around a year. I worked helping my friend Carlos Cortez install office partitions, and this was like 16, 17, and, and maybe part of my 18-year-olds, and then one day, I was approached by Roberto Hernandez at RAP, located on 23rd in Florida, and he asked me if I wanted to be a youth organizer because I had the ability to organize. That's what he saw, because he was one of the witnesses that saw me organizing these dances. And RAP was doing services at Youth Guiding Center, 
They were doing foster care. The group home was already in operation. And there I was as a youth organizer. And then I was being exposed to advocacy and community work. In 1980, the community warrior Mitchell Salazar would become the youngest executive director at RAP at the age of 24. RAP was instrumental in developing young community leaders that would evolve into community warriors, young women and men from the Mission District who had found their path to self-determination and helped transform their community. The voices and the stories that you heard still resonate with so many people today. On the next episode of the Rama Blueprints, the Mission District begins to accommodate a new generation of immigrants and RAP leadership goes through another change. In RAP's early days, it was really a movement. It was a social action of people doing things in the community with no funding, in some cases, volunteers. And I believe that the organization then, prior to me taking over as executive director, had begun to implement programs that was based on the need of the community. Thank you for listening to the Rama Blueprints podcast. This episode is dedicated to Fili Sala Sr. and to his son, Fili Sala Jr. Rest in power, elder, and rest in power, youngster. The Five Sisters Audio Garden would like to acknowledge the following. San Francisco Foundation, Garesen SF, Instituto Familiar de la Raza, Pacific Islander Resource Hut, Jim Queen, Ray Balboron, and the Mission Media Arts. Isaiah Villavicencio, Juan Rivera, Ricardo and Arturo Carrillo. In memoriam, Mitchell Salazar, and the many individual supporters who have graciously contributed and donated to our production. It is because of your kindness that we are able to produce the Rama Blue Prince podcast. You can donate and become part of our family by visiting carecensf.org. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Darren J. De Leon and Socorro Gamboa. If you like our show, subscribe, give it a rating on Apple Podcasts, and share it with two people. Please spread the word. And remember, to listen is to heal. All power to the people. These may be challenging times, but have hope. And listen to the untold health stories about incredible people who have committed their lives to better their communities. Diverse health activists, direct medical providers, community organizers that are helping our communities to get healthier and stronger. Stories of local heroes during the pandemic and even before that proves over and over again that people can come together during times of need and make the world a better place. Stories you would never hear of Accept at Healthcare Untold, hosted by Barbara Ann Garcia.